right out of the shoot, we want to get back to the downtown east side. Now, I know what you're saying. You're like, ah, you guys covered this top to bottom yesterday. Um, the question is, did we? And I'm not saying that about my own colleagues. I'm saying, did the media have enough access to a very pivotal moment on the downtown east side? That is one of the questions that we will ask our first guest of the afternoon. He is the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, Brent Jolie, kind enough to uh, join me today. Brent, how are you? Hi, bro. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. And uh, you know what? I was really proud of the work that our team did yesterday here on Global and with CKNW. Um, But there are people that are saying there were moments on the downtown east side that weren't covered. And I don't know if it had to do with just street cameras being unavailable for the first half hour of the push from the police or what have you. But what was your assessment overall of day one of the coverage? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think everybody did a great job and, and it was under um, unfortunate circumstances. You know, this is a real critical story of the public interest that I know a lot of people in across the country, not just in, in Vancouver, are really watching very carefully. Um, I think, you know, overshadowing some of the stories that were covered also, though, is, you know, the law enforcement and police response to journalists being there and trying to document what's going on and serve as independent witnesses and, uh, and, and you know, telling those stories. Uh, I think that that's been overshadowed in a lot of ways because for whatever reason, Vancouver PD decided to uh, obstruct many journalists and and make it a, a very difficult situation. Okay, well, I wanna, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation because there's going to be some people out there saying, why do we need cameras in that moment? Why do we have to take the dignity, dignity away from these people who are losing their homes in real time? Like, not every media outlet's going to be able to, um, you know, distort faces so that we don't see their identity. So I guess maybe the question that I would have is, walk me through the standard that the media should be be held to when covering something of that nature for sure well i think i mean first of all i think this is a this is a critical we're at a critical point right now because we've seen a lot of these kind of incidences taking place uh you know in toronto in halifax and now in vancouver and there's kind of a a bit of a mission creep if you will on the part of law enforcement to you know sort of say that you know we're we're preserving the privacy and safety of individuals who are you know being like you say having their their lives torn apart um i think you know journalists are are pretty competent people um they are able to discern you know what should be shown and what should not be um, and I think, you know, everybody operates under standards of ethics um, and, and guidelines that, you know, of course, you don't want to you're, you're running into people on perhaps maybe the worst day of their life or one of the worst days of their lives. Um, and I think, you know, making a making a scene out of them is, is hardly uh, hardly the objective of any any ethical journalist. So I think, you know, there needs to be a bit more of trust. Um, on the part of law enforcement placed in journalists that, you know, they have their job to do, which is to, you know, rightly or wrongly go about the actions that they've been asked to undertake. Um, but journalists also have a job to do and that they know how to how to do this stuff and shouldn't have to be um, encumbered in the way that they have been. You know, we have a sports team in this city, and I'm not going to name names. I think most who follow this show, this station, know who I'm talking about, that won't accredit journalists to cover that hockey team unless they're affiliated with an organization. For example, I'm affiliated with Chorus. So Mm -hmm. I guess the question would be, 
if you are a, I guess, rogue journalist by trade, and I don't want to use blogger in that capacity, but if you're not affiliated with an organization, how do you imply those standards to make sure that everybody is ethically being held to that standard? Well, I think, I mean, I think, I think that's a good question. Absolutely. I think, you know, but at the same time, what we're looking at is, you know, journalism is a self-regulated profession. Um, you know, it's not like a doctor or a lawyer where there's a college of physicians or a bar association or anything like that. Um, and and there's a reason behind that. And it's because, you know, the issue of freedom of expression. Um, I think journalists are, are, you know, we need to have a sense of default to open. That doesn't mean everybody should be able to run roughshod over anything. But I am very careful around issues of restrictions and having, you know, whether it's a law enforcement, whether it's a sports team, whether it's, a, you know, a city hall determining who is a journalist and who isn't. Um, I think that's a very slippery slope yes. once we get into kind of debating that. Yeah. And and the debate is very intriguing to me because I've been on both sides of the equation. So I, I know what it's like to have that wall put up in front of me. And I also know what it's like to actually have this access where I'm, quote unquote, taken a little more seriously because of the logo behind my shoulder. So uh, it's mm-hmm. an interesting conversation. Brent, hopefully we'll get to do more of this in the future. And I do thank you for your time this afternoon. Anytime. Anytime. Happy to talk. Anytime that we get news uh, that is progressive, that uh, unshackles us from the final stages of COVID, not that it's over by any stretch of the imagination, but at least uh, we're getting to a place now where we're starting to feel more confident in going into uh, places like old age homes, places like hospitals. And we've got some good news today from Adrian Dix and uh, our guest that joins me right now, Provincial Health Officer of BC, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Dr. Henry, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I would imagine that any time that you get to step to the podium and provide good news, you take a deep breath and you're like, thank God we're at this phase. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I think it it really is a testament to how people have worked together in this province. And we've um, able to get through this. And uh, it, today is a good day, I think. Um, I'm I'm really confident that we're in a good a better place now and that taking away these restrictions will allow people to go back to doing some of the things that they may have avoided or not been able to do for some time. You know the nurses all too well here in this province. Is this something that's been a long time coming or did many people in that industry feel that uh, they just wanted to get through the winter season so that they could feel a little more confident when you gave them the option to take that mask off? You know what? I think in at least the people I talk to in our healthcare settings, we were all very committed to having masking. It it made everybody feel much more um, much more comfortable in many situations through this winter season. And you know the data we presented today, it's been a very challenging season. So it was important to minimize uh, those interactions to make sure that everybody was taking those precautions. But the, uh, the the viruses are decreasing now, not gone away, but uh, we're at a much better place now. I know that the most vulnerable can sometimes be those in their late 70s and into their 80s as well, which when you bring up the homes is probably the last that you last place that you really wanted to remove masks just to make sure that everybody's case. Do you expect that everybody will remove their masks automatically or that you'll still see a good fraction of the city and, and people going into these scenarios feeling as if they may still wear their masks? Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be a gradual change. Um, it, it is important, and some people who are at higher risk themselves may want to continue to wear masks in many situations, including in long-term care homes. 
though we do need to remember that 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 facial interaction and being with somebody with your loved one in a in a care home and being able to to interact with without wearing a mask is also important for people's health and well-being so it is up to choice now but really importantly is if you're not feeling well yourself well if it's mild wear a mask or um, postpone any non-essential visits to people who are at higher risk. Another thing that you brought up in today's press conference um, is the progress being made right now when it comes to water and, and, and wastewater. And I know just looking at some of the testing sites over at Annesis Island that there is a bit of an uptick right now, but you said that this is nothing that really raises a red flag just yet. Absolutely. And uh, we've learned a lot about the wastewater testing and we have some great experts at uh, at the BCCDC who really have been pioneering this in, in BC and in, across Canada. And so we, we've changed the testing as they've developed newer techniques. And so that did give the illusion, I guess, of, of uh, because it was able to detect more of the virus and more sensitive. Um, but we're seeing a general t- trend that is going down. And that's good news. Um, and these more sensitive tests allow us to do more whole genome sequencing as well. So that makes it easier for us to, or they're able to tell uh, what types of, of the virus are circulating. And some really cool stuff we're doing that uh, we don't have enough data yet to, to put out publicly, but we're also looking at what strains of influenza are in wastewater and around the province and, and RSV. So that's hmm. really exciting stuff. So what started with tracking COVID can actually be something, a tool that you'll use to cover some other viruses as well, if I'm hearing that correct. Absolutely, yes. Well, I I wanted to get into this because I don't know when the last time somebody asked you this, but the state of our nursing right now, and I'm not going to get into contracts or anything like that, but it's just been such a tiresome two to three years since the outbreak of COVID uh, here in Canada. Can you speak to the state of the nurses, how fatigued they are, and is there some reprieve on the way? Yeah, yeah, I can only speak from my perspective of being a colleague with many, many nurses around the the Mm -hmm. province and having those discussions. What I can say, though, is, uh, you know, this pandemic has exposed some of the chronic issues that we've had in our healthcare system around um, retaining and recruiting people, around working conditions. And so I think hopefully, and we've seen this with at least what I've been reading about the latest bargaining, you know, that we're putting in place some measures that will support people and make it a, a more um, a, a more fulfilling environment for, for nurses, for other healthcare workers, for physicians as well. So if nothing else, we're paying attention to some of these long-standing issues in a way that's different than we were before. It was funny because when they mentioned ratios the other day, I mean, I know that that got the news headline, but some of the nurses that I talked to were kind of like, well, we've had ratios for years, but the trouble that they say they face is the fact that they're double dipping in addition to, you know, dealing with, you know, triage that they're also dealing with other departments because between people calling in sick and just being understaffed, that ratios is great on paper, but there's still work to be done. Well, absolutely, and I think we see that across the healthcare sector. And and on top of that, of course, everybody's tired because of what we've been through and the extra effort and and challenges it is to manage in in the midst of a global pandemic. So, um, all of these measures, I think, are hopeful. 
um, none of them are going to happen overnight. So we all have to continue to support each other in the healthcare system. Well, today was good news. Uh, I lost my grandmother and was uh, had to say goodbye to her through a window, which was unfortunate, but we understood as a family where we were at during the pandemic. So today's a, a special day for my family in particular, because it would have been nice to walk through those doors and have the access that uh, we're starting to gain now. So thank you for staying with us. Thank you for working on this. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Well, thank you very much. And I'm so very sorry to hear. I know there are many people who've lost loved ones in the last few years, and it's been a most difficult time. Well, every step forward is a good one. Thank you, doctor. We'll talk again. That's true. Thank you. The topic of the week has been obviously everything that's been going on on the downtown east side. And again, passion on all sides of this. But when you're actually witnessing the clearing of homeless encampments in East Hastings, uh, and you've been working down there to be an advocate, it obviously brings you know a lot of emotion to the forefront. I'm going to bring on Vince Towie's community organizer with Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network for Drug Users. Uh, he's been around the block during all these clearings, and I uh, wanted to hear it from somebody that's been there with boots on the ground. Vince, good afternoon. Hi there. So, Vince, let's talk about this, because obviously you've got... Um, you know, your opinions and your thoughts on this, but walk me through when all of a sudden you found out that yesterday was going to be D-Day and all of a sudden the cops, the city of Vancouver, everybody was going to come down and clear out that area. Mm -hmm. So we did have at least some advance notice. Vandu received a leaked document from the city of Vancouver outlining their decampment plan. Um, And so that was reported on by the Vancouver Sun. Um, You know, the document is quite... uh, disturbing you know it was a multi-stage approach uh with you know police taking the lead um but what i find most alarming about the document is that the process of this decampment is logic is so-called um, let's say resetting behavior of individuals on the block all the while knowing that there's nowhere for them to go there's no housing options the the city had, you know as they were decamping, we're telling individuals on the block, uh, the city has no, you know, responsibility to house people, but you can't stay here. And so it's, I, I find this to be an extremely cynical and cruel process, and one that the city knows won't work, right? Because people have come back. You know, the city has spent hundreds and thousands of dollars on this paramilitary um, operation in order to remove, let's say, a handful of tents off the block, uh, and nonetheless. Um, nothing, nothing has changed. People have moved right back onto the block because, again, there's nowhere to go. The city manager has said this. David Eby has said this. Ravi Kalan has, has suggested as much as well. There is no shelter for people, and yet they cannot shelter in place or survive on the block together in community. And instead, they have, you know, they're met with a billy club and a gun and told scram. And so the entire thing is, is extremely dehumanizing okay, and so ultimately futile. A question, futile. Vince, that I'm going to ask you, you talk about guns and billy clubs, and I'm not going to pick the negative mm-hmm. thing that you said, but were, were guns actually shown? Were billy clubs brought out? Yeah, well, look at, look at our Twitter, right? There were maybe 200 constables deployed just yesterday. They're still out there today. Uh, they were decked out in full gear with like cannons on their backs. Uh, while the decampment was happening up onto the roofs, there was like what looked like VPD snipers with some kind of device monitoring what was going down on there. Uh, bicycle constables were using their bikes to push over an indigenous elder who was in a wheelchair. Uh, they actually destroyed and broke um, some indigenous activists who were, you know, smudging the area. They broke their smudge bowl with glee. And again, like that's that's the kind of violence that that uh, the 
police and the city are meeting out to both residents themselves and the supporters and uh, people trying to, you know, take care of their neighbors and friends. So, you know, we had Adam Palmer, the police chief, on yesterday, and he said that it was, and I'm not trying to get into a he said, she said, but I'm. he brought up the fact that it was actually some of the residents and some of the activists who were the aggressors on the police. Did you see something different? Yeah, I saw something absolutely different, and you can see the video on, again, all over Twitter that will tell you the opposite, right? Um, you know, I was on mic yelling, this is a peaceful demonstration. Do not let the police instigate another riot like they did August 9th, 2022. The police were the ones instigating this kind of violence. The decampment itself is a form of violence. And we, it's, it's quite obvious. As I said earlier, they are trying to correct behavior by smashing everyone's things, all the while knowing that they have nowhere to go. So where else are they going to go? You know, we, we, we heard it from David Eby himself. He said people are going to have to shelter outside still even after this decampment. So this is it's quite cynical. So where do you expect them to go? Like, I know that you've mentioned that certain people are just going to come right back and set up shop again until, you know, eventually they get left alone. But in the event that they can't come back to Hastings, where do you see Plan B? Plan B? Well, some people are trying to find some kind of indoor shelter. Um, again, there's very few spots, very few beds, very few rooms for people to actually take. Again, the premier has said this himself there's not enough shelter for people people are going to be sheltering if not on the block then in the alleyways alone which i think you know is is quite obvious the incidence of overdose assault theft or worse skyrocket when people are not sheltering together once people are in the alleyways the the danger that they face and this is why it's so ridiculous when people are talking about safety is what about the safety of the residents themselves and so, again, as police continue to harass people, right, and this is, again, still happening, right? They blocked off the street again today uh, and are continuing this paramilitary occupation of the, of the downtown east side. And, you know, last night we saw that cops were trying to stop people from sheltering on the, on the street, despite the fact that there is a, you know, a bylaw that does say that people are allowed to shelter overnight, right? They were going around, again, stopping people from sheltering. Where are people supposed to go? I have no clue. Okay, Vince. Vince, I appreciate I appreciate your insight. I I can hear your passion and your disdain, but uh, all I can say is we'd love to have you back so that we can further, you know, see what's going on on the street. So thank you for your opinion. Happy to come back. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vince. No problem. It is uh, definitely a topic that just doesn't seem to be going away over the last forty eight hours, and that is the uh, removal of residents from the Vancouver's downtown east side. Um, it was definitely hot. It was a flashpoint yesterday. Seemed for the most part like cooler heads prevailed. But one city councilor decided he was going to put on his shoes and go right down into the uh, removal of said tents and said homes. Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor, kind enough to join me this afternoon. Pete, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. Let's talk about this. I mean, obviously, tensions were high, and then all of a sudden, a Vancouver City Councilor decides to show his head down there. What were some of the things that uh, you felt and heard? Well, I mean, I, sh- I should qualify it by, by it's, it's my neighborhood. I live just a few blocks away. And, um, you know, I, I, I felt that it was incumbent upon me to go down and observe firsthand how the operation was going. Uh, how folks were feeling and reacting to it, uh, how our our staff and VPD were conducting themselves and, and how activists were conducting themselves. And, um, you know, just really to make myself available. I, 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 to be honest, I'd gone down strictly to observe. And then when I was, uh, I was sort of called out by somebody with a bullhorn and was quickly sort of surrounded and, and, and 
you know, it was, a, it was a little tense for a moment there as it was a lot of folks talking at me uh, from various different directions and cameras in my face. And I probably should have better anticipated that that would be the outcome. That certainly wasn't the intention. Uh, I wanted to first and foremost observe. Uh, but after that kind of initial um, flurry of activity kind of calmed down, I, I was able to have some really important conversations with folks in the community uh, about what they were feeling and, and, and take a good, solid uh, observation of how things were going. And I was, by and large, you know, I, 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 I want to commend everybody. I think that, you know, a lot of the activists were doing a lot to de-escalate the situation rather than inflame it, and that was notable. Um, and, and I think as a result, we saw a, a lot uh, uh, less... Um, confrontation than, than could have been. Well, let me ask you a question with regards to communication, because obviously we hear about this leaked memo, which isn't necessarily at the top of the things that I want to talk about. But once the VPD show up and they show up in mass numbers and all of a sudden these people in these homes, these tents are looking upward and seeing a whole lot of members on the streets did they know this was coming? Like a lot of people say, like Adam Palmer said the other day, that this has been months of planning and this was just activation day, whereas others say they were caught completely by surprise. Where where was the communication in your estimation? Yeah, and I've, I've definitely heard, and that's part of why I was attending. I talked to various different service providers as well who said that they weren't that they were caught a little flat-footed and, and would have appreciated a little bit more of a heads-up so we know that you know groups that deal with violence uh, against women, for instance, uh, weren't able to sort of activate emergency response for women who were, you know, sheltering together in a very unsafe condition. And then, you know, the concern, of course, is as we disperse the encampment and those, say, uh, you know, cluster of women who are sheltering together for safety are then, you know, cast into different parts of, you know, the downtown, uh, they no longer have that sort of aggregate safety. So things like that, recognizing that there was, similarly with uh, supervised consumption services, overdose prevention, that kind of thing. Uh, they were behind the cordon and there was some alternate arrangements made and there was the opportunity to get a police escort through the cordon to, but the practicality of that wasn't really thought out because I think most people who are going for safe consumption probably don't want to engage the police for an escort to do so. Yeah. So, so there's pieces there that, that certainly um, I think weren't well uh, planned out. Um, but it's a pretty complicated operation, and I would say on the whole, it was well well done by uh, our staff as far as you know trying to navigate an extremely complicated and oftentimes quite unsafe situation. And I think okay, counselor, you know, the- not to cut you off, I appreciate your no, assessment no, on that. Yeah. The, the one thing I do want to squeeze this in, and I'm unfortunately born by the clock here. I want to talk about SROs because we talk about where are we going to put these people? I mean, obviously, they've got the shelters in the immediate future. Um, everybody's going to dissipate. But we hear a lot of people say that they'd rather stay outside um, than go to these SROs. Now, some would say it's because there's rules within SROs, whereas others would say it's because they are of such poor quality that they actually feel better, safer and cleaner on the street. What do you say to that? Yeah, and I, I, I don't discount that. I've been in a number of SROs that are, frankly, quite appalling. Uh, and I would say probably the same applies to many of the shelter offerings that, we've, that indeed we were asking folks to, to go to when we were asking them to decamp. So we know that the shelter and SRO system is broken. I first ran in 2014 on the, on the notion of providing, uh, you know, sort of temporary rapid shelter solutions like these little tiny homes. And we have seen it now across North America, and they are an effective intervention. We've yet to see it happen here. Uh, we find, I finally got it through in 2020 as a, as a council motion, but we still haven't actually delivered on a pilot. 
I think that we do have to look at realistic solutions because the reality is, is that this SRO stock is aging out. They're way past their best before date. Most of them are over 100 years old, and they're plaster lath, balloon frame, unreinforced masonry. Um, and, of course, the, the, the impetus for a lot of this decampment uh, the last couple of days is because a lot of fires are starting that are catching these buildings. We've lost one just last week, um, and, and they're not safe. Right. So we do know that we need to come up with better solutions. And this is where we really need, you know, that that work with the province and, and even the feds to really help deliver on that, because the city cannot deliver on that, that level of housing replacement. I hear you. Councillor Fry, thank you for your time this afternoon. Great insight. All right. My pleasure. Bye-bye. There he is. Uh, Pete Fry of the Vancouver City Council. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.